Welcome to Money and Meaning, a podcast where we connect with people around the world who are working to unlock the power of markets for impact. I'm Nicola Sasso, Content Manager at Soka Global. This podcast series is hosted by Soka Global and the Sorensen Impact Center. Soka Global convenes the largest and most diverse community in impact through live and digital experiences that educate, spur conversation, and inspire investment in positive impact. We work under the leadership of the Sorensen Impact Center, which helps organizations achieve their impact vision. The center is proudly housed at the University of Utah's David Eccles School of Business. Each episode of Money and Meaning features stories of amazing people who are leveraging the power of capital markets for the betterment of people and planet in a just and sustainable way. You'll hear conversations like this at SoCup 23, our next flagship event held in October 2023 in San Francisco. As a podcast listener, you can save $50 of the current ticket price with the code MONEYMEANING23. That's all caps, M-O-N-E-Y-M-E-A-N-I-N-G-2-3. Register at SoCupGlobal.com. We hope to see you there. This episode on Money and Meaning features a tasty SoCup 22 session with Adam Maxwell of Voyage Foods, Michelle Lee of Livid, Josh Nixon of Prime Roots, Alan Perlstein of California Cultured, and moderator Paul Bronson of Indie Bio at Sauce. They discuss production technologies that are reshaping the future of food and reducing the industry's climate impact. We hope you enjoy the conversation. My name is Poe Bronson. I'm a managing director of a venture capital program called Indie Bio, which is about two blocks from here, over by the Mint. Uh, I'm a general partner at the venture fund SOSV, and at Indie Bio and at SOSV, we believe very strongly and invest very heavily into climate tech, allocating um, about 45% of our assets into climate tech, which has made us, according to PitchBook, the number one most active climate tech investor since 2011. And then in any one quarter or half year, we might be one, two, or three. We're number one again right now in 2022 is most active. And a really exciting and almost epic thing that happened at IndieBio seven years ago was our world's first venture capital investment in the cell-based meat sector with a company called Memphis Meats, now renamed Upside Foods. And it created a an incredible movement among young scientists and food scientists and food people to say, wow, my work could make a huge impact on the world beyond just taste good, beyond just help people. And at IndieBio, we began to receive applications from all over the world. We have pulled founders from 38 different countries. And we're very proud that in our search for great founders, Over 45% of our companies that we fund are uh, female-founded, female-led companies. And it has had an enormous social impact and inspiration. But today we really want to talk about how food tech is climate tech. And I would say it's not obvious. It's not obvious, right? In food, if we're disrupting the auto industry, you're disrupting a 100-year-old industry. If you're disrupting the rocket industry, it's a 50, 70-year-old industry. Disrupting food, it's at least, agriculture and livestock is at least 12,000 years old. Right? It's a very, very traditional industry, and you have to work with people in their culture. And it's very, very geographic and regional and cultural, and food is our 
families, it's our history, it's our culture. And when you bring technology into that space, you can't, you cannot deny people their history and their culture and what matters to them, right? You have to find ways to adapt and fit into what they're doing and never demonize the fact that we've been making food, our families have been making food for many, many years. My grandfather was a game and fish warden for the state of Montana. He had 10,000 head of cattle. I grew up in the meat industry. Uh, we're doing extremely cool things now to make it more sustainable and find ways for us to teach us. So we're just going to have a little chat, and then we'll get to eat. So I've asked the, some of the founders here just to sort of show us what you're going to be eating in a minute. So Adam, I'm going to start with you, um, and I want you to show them your cookie and, and tell them what it is and why does it matter. Yeah, so we have... Uh, and if you need an eater, I'm right over here. Like, here about, <laughs> Enjoy. Um, yeah, so Voyage Foods, kind of in broad scopes, a food technology company trying to replicate the world's most problematic and favorite food, ways that are kind of more sustainable today, radically cheaper than the kind of current products today, you know, clean label, made out of real food, and nutritionally equivalent. Um, and what you'll be eating today is our cacao-free chocolate. It's made out of... Uh, side streams from wine manufacturing, sunflower oil processing, and, uh, and our kind of molecular coffee also. Yeah. Cool. So what's unsustainable about chocolate as we know? And we have two chocolate companies here. So I know you really focus on the growth of our world and demand for this, this resource. Yeah, there, there are two huge pieces of you know, sustainability quote unquote, for both chocolate and coffee, right? There's the environmental footprint today, which is egregious, right? Um, you know, whether it's, you know, high water consumption, wildly high GHG emissions, like people think of milk, mead as some of the most water intensive crops in the world, coffee and chocolate kind of bat right neck and neck with those. But there's also kind of, you know, and we're talking right before this, but the long-term sustainability piece is huge also. Like, do we want to eat these things in two generations, right? Can our kids have a chocolate chip cookie, uh, you know, in 20, 30 years, right? And I think that long-term sustainability piece is something that, you know, the world is going to have to confront in, in the, a lot of these commodity sectors because we just won't be able to grow enough for the demand. So they're either going to be luxury products or, okay. yeah. We'll come back to you. you know, I'll take the mic. Michelle, uh, why don't you tell people about this uh, piece of bacon? Yeah, so we're a lipid. Um, we're making alternative fat. Um, a lot of people in this space um, focus us on producing alternative proteins, but we're a very different in the way that we focus on the fat because we think that fat is very critical in you know closing the gap between alternative meats and so that it can taste more like real meat. And um, on my hand, this is a piece of bacon with you know mashed potatoes, but this is. Um, one of the products that we're developing right now, we have this very proprietary technology that we can create something that resembles animal fat. And um, right now, utilizing this technology, we can assemble into, you know, whole cut meat that can taste like meat. And this is the world's first ever pork belly. <laughs> awesome. So, like, if we're in the iPhone 3 era of plant-based foods, you're looking at, like, the iPhone 14 of plant-based foods. Right? Yes, and potentially 20. <laughs> so, uh, Josh, uh, you got a sandwich. To, you had a sandwich there. Where did you say? Yes, you eat it? I have a sandwich. Do you yeah, want to tell us it? about the sandwich. Yeah, I'm going to love to eat yeah, this. So yeah. This is actually, um, this is from Byright here in the city, and um, they're one of our early partners um, at Prime Roots, where um, our desire 
is to build a platform for making the next generation of meat alternatives, but also to honor the culture of meat. And as such, um, we've really gone after the deli and charcuterie space, everything from salami to ham to foie gras. And so um, really thinking about the future and not only sustainability, but also if we continue to consume these products um, in the fashion that we do in the Western world, but then globally, by 2050, we'd need about eight Earths worth of natural resources to reach a level of production. And so to maintain this culture, we do need to come up with other ways of achieving it. And I can make an impact just by eating a sandwich. Yeah, which is really convenient. Because <laughs> we eat three to five times a day. Yep. Americans eat a lot of sandwiches. Okay. On the farthest right here, I have Alan Perlstein of California Cultured. Do you have a goodie to show people? Oh, yes, I do. I have some chocolate here. No. One of our little uh, chocolate bonbons. Um, and, yeah. and we also have a little bit of a, <laughs> a display up there of, of some of our next generation chocolates. We're producing uh, chocolate through plant cell culture. That means we could take a little chocolate bean and grow it endlessly without the plants or, or uh, unethical labor issues that unfortunately come with it. Um, you, can, you can speak to those a little bit. It's okay. Oh, yeah. There is, uh, unfortunately, a large amount of child slavery involved in today's food system. That's, unfortunately, still getting worse. Um, right now, in the chocolate industry, there's a million and a half child slaves working under forced labor conditions um, in Africa, South America, and in Asia. Uh, the, the, these kids are there because it's their parents can't pay for school, or many of them were even kidnapped. And this has basically been a problem for the last 30 years, which has resulted in many of these now slaves becoming farmers and having a five-acre farm, which is impossible for them to make a living. And they're like trapped in this horrible condition that they can't grow enough chocolate to make money, and it's very hard for them to escape. And we're trying to support these countries to give them better options to move on to other agriculture careers or better ways to make, to make a living because at the end of the day, that's what they want to do. And, and tell us a little bit about the deforest angle. Like when, when we first funded you, uh, I knew extensively about the child labor issues in chocolate, but I didn't actually understand the way that uh, forests were being cutting down for the cacao plant. Yeah, um, the, the most traditional way to grow chocolate, coffee is usually purely under the sun, but uh, uh, it's very expensive because you have to chop down lots of trees, and it also requires a lot more water, but the plants grow a lot faster, and that's what the industry was incentivized to do. Um, there are newer ways of shade-grown trees, but they take such a long time to grow, and many farmers don't even use that. So uh, right now in the Ivory Coast, 95% of the world of their forests were clear-cut, and unfortunately this is happening in, in many nearby African countries as well. And we're looking to work th with these countries to disincentivize the worst growing and production patterns ever. Thank you. And Adam, uh, I'd love you, you to talk a little bit about your uh, how you build what you build. And I think a lot of uh, people at Capital have heard that there's food waste problems, that a lot of food is wasted. I don't know if you 
like brag or not about the fact that you can use essentially what are waste streams to because your food tastes so good we wouldn't know it and i don't know that i want to see like what waste it is on the label kind of thing but there's an incredible sustainability story behind your company if you could share it yeah uh, i'm like a reformed big food person um and you know from working with kind of global fortune 50 food companies right uh, if you really want to move the needle on this stuff it has to be cost effective right so from day one we we're like well how can we underprice you know the whole coffee industry not in 10 years but today how can we underprice the whole chocolate industry today and you know where are you going to find your cheapest raw materials, right? It's stuff that people are paying to get rid of, right? So a lot of our feedstocks, the cost of transportation is a lot higher than the cost of material. Um, and you also get huge environmental efficiencies out of that, right? Now, uh, we have grape seeds that are from wine waste, from Charnay wine manufacturing. And, you know, these things are go to compost, right? They can't be used for traditional animal feed, like a lot of food waste streams and, you know, in compost, you're getting all that methane emission, et cetera. And it's, we're not just, you know, taking waste, but we're, you know, uh, avoiding some of the like greenhouse gas production from those secondary compost, uh, whatever, you know, final destinations for those are too. Well, how do you do it? Everybody oh. wants to know how you do it. Yes. Yeah, so the whole thing's predicated, right? You know, chocolate doesn't exist in the natural world, right? If you eat a rock a cow pod off a tree in Cote d'Ivoire, it tastes nothing like the experience that we consume as chocolate, right? The mouthfeel texture, all the flavor profiles are derived from process, right? And the whole principle is how do we take things with somewhat similar precursors and treat them and process them in certain ways so we can get the same final output? Um, and so if you think of, that's why we have, you know, the same nutritional parameters of you know a traditional chocolate bar but it's really how can we take these similar precursors and through the same reaction pathways of in chocolate manufacturing really produce these out of kind of low cost wildly environmentally friendly allergen free ingredients um, I, uh, I don't know if y'all love statistics but I'd love to hear what are your uh, you mentioned the eight Earths. So I used four Earths yesterday when I presented yesterday morning. But uh, I can explain that concept to people briefly, and then we could argue later about whether it's four or eight. But uh, today, uh, of all the world's global resources, 16% of people are using 74% of the world's resources. That's one billion people who are living at the Western standard of living. And that's our global inequality as we know it today. But this inequality is lessening, not worsening. And so by 2050, we will have 3 billion people living at a Western standard of living. Western standard of living is defined as that's substantially more than just being part of the global middle class. That means about $25,000 in income per adult per year. And they're not, we're not going to be able to use less. We will have to, we will still be using as much, eating as, using as much wood, using as much concrete, as much water, as much energy, as much food. And so, as Josh said, eight or four, we're only going to need new ways to reinvent literally everything, our entire manufacturing systems to be far more sustainable so we can have that output with far uh, more efficient inputs. So what are other statistics that for you, not necessarily even up your sector, that help define the link between our food system and climate? I'll ask any of you. It's huge. Uh, 
I, I think the the latest numbers that that I've seen just from the chocolate and coffee industry today is roughly between one to two gigatons of CO2 being produced in methane, and that's uh, projected to, to double and triple over the next couple of years. And uh, obviously, these foods require fertilizer, they require labor, they require resources. And if so much uh, energy and resources go into them, what about the rest of our food system? Um, we think that uh, it's unfortunately just going to require more and more uh, raw inputs, which are now uh, involved in giant global wars, basically, from potash uh, to, to oils are, are basically stuck in the war zone, that we can't grow the foods that we need. And we're, we're, we're unfortunately leading to lots of global um, food crunches it looks like not even the next 20 years, in the next five years alone. So uh, a lot, lot of trouble. Yeah. And I actually, I believe I figured out um, what the difference between four and eight Earths is. I think um, with our statistics, we had optimistically for humanity um, said that about six billion people would be living that standard of living. But that's actually pe more pessimistic for the environment if we don't make a change, right? And so it's very important that all aspects of this lifestyle that we wish the whole world can enjoy um, are made sustainable. Um, I brought with us um, a life cycle assessment that we did because it's very important to us that we actually quantify what we are doing differently than me. And uh, just generally speaking, it's about 10 times less water, 10 times less land, and 10 times less greenhouse gas emissions than the comparable me. Um, and so that's a very big difference um, for something that's a very easy transition for people to make, let alone um, there's also a lot of health benefits that uh, people can experience with these shifts as well, um, particularly with what we're doing in the Delhi. Um, nitrates have just been determined uh, by the World Health Organization, which I think a lot of scientists know for a while, um, to be a class one carcinogen. Um, and so there's a large aspect of human health and enjoyment of life, not just the sustainability of that enjoyment that we believe we can address. Uh, I'll just use my personal one. Uh, my wife is uh, Cajun. We have enormous family in Louisiana. And uh, uh, their family were shrimpers uh, in the bayou uh, a generation before. And uh, agricultural fertilizer runoff uh, down the Mississippi through an entire breadbasket has created the world's largest hypoxic dead zone in an ocean. Uh, it's twice the size of the state of Georgia, and it's basically an area of salt water that uh, nothing can grow in. And uh, it's, it's eventually created by algae growing and taking up the fertilizer and then uh, taking all the oxygen out of it. So a dead zone literally means that if a fish swims into it, or a manatee, or a dolphin, they suffocate to death. Um, and this is very, very, very personal one to me. Yeah, so from our standpoint, every year we consume about 350 million tons of meat. And that would, you know, occur almost seven gigatons of greenhouse gases by 2050. And so our mission is really to, you know, close the gap between alternative proteins and allow in, in terms of taste so that we can allow more people um, to, you know, um, 
adopt alternative proteins and choose some sources that are more sustainable, um, better for the uh, climate. And also, um, I agree with Josh that um, you know, health is a very um, critical point. Um, a lot of these foods that we're currently eating today are very unsustainable at the same time and not healthy anymore. So as the point of food science um, or, you know, food scientists, what we're trying to build is to, you know, make something that are healthy and sustainable at the same time. We have a 25,000 square foot plant in Oakland right now, which, you know, by any means is tiny. Right, um, but we're kind of currently the the most cost-effective, low-cost chocolate and coffee producer in the world. Um, and you know, if we think about it, like you just mumble, we're the lowest-cost chocolate <laughs> peanut butter in case anyone from Cargill in the world. Yeah, in case anyone from Cargill's here. Um, and and I think that's really important because, like, like wealthy Westerners, like we don't need food tech, right? I, I think like as a whole, like, and this is something that we're trying to prove to the industry to hopefully be an example for other people, but I think the part of the planet that's going to benefit the most from this isn't, you know, wealthy Western people, especially in a city like San Francisco, right? Like, you guys are all going to eat well, right? Um, the people in this room are not the people who need need the help, and if we're looking at per capita consumption of these luxury goods globally, that's where population growth is, right? The developing world is where population is accelerating. It is where people are eating more and more of these kind of unsustainable products. And so I think, like, that's where the world needs to focus is, like, and, and the industry needs to focus because we're, we're going to be fine, right? We're going to eat well. It's going to be okay. And that's not where the problem is. So we're really trying to service people who don't necessarily have as much choice um, and really kind of where we can make the largest impact in that vein. Thank you for listening to this episode of Money and Meaning. If you were inspired by the conversation and are interested in getting more involved with the SoCup community, join us at SoCup 23 in October. As a podcast listener, you can save $50 of the current ticket price with the code MONEYMEANING23. That's all caps M-O-N-E-Y-M-E-A-N-I-N-G-2-3. Register at SoCupGlobal.com. We look forward to seeing you in October. Be sure to subscribe to Money and Meaning wherever you get your podcast to be notified of our next episode's release.